Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation between Nick O'Mealy, Director of the Shorenstein Center, and Tom Patterson, Bradley Professor of Government in the Press at Harvard Kennedy School. They discuss Professor Patterson's new study on media coverage of Donald Trump's first 100 days as president. You can read the study by visiting shorensteincenter.org and clicking on Research. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center podcast. My name is Nick O'Mealy, and I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. You can find us on Twitter at ShorensteinCTR and visit us on the web, ShorensteinCenter.org. I'm here today with the Bradley Professor of Government and Press, Tom Patterson. And he's got a new study out looking at the mainstream media news coverage of Donald Trump's first 100 days. This is, uh, in some sense, a continuation of Tom's studies over the last two years looking at media coverage in the political cycle and the political campaign. And I just wanted to have a conversation with Tom about the study and some of the conclusions from it. I think first, it'd be useful just to let our listeners know that the, the, about the methodology. Uh, Tom looked at uh, three U.S. daily papers, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post, and the main hour-long newscasts of four U.S. television stations, CBS Evening News, CNN's The Situation Room, Fox's Special Report, and NBC Nightly News. And then for a little bit of variety and comparison, um, Dr. Patterson also looked at three European news outlets, the Print Financial Times, based in London, the BBC, uh, which is Britain's public service broadcaster, and ARD, Germany's oldest public service broadcaster. Uh, they, the, the, the data looks at every single thing published and aired in those hour-long news segments and in the print editions, uh, but it excludes sports obituaries and letters to the editors. So that means op-eds and editorials are included, uh, but letters from the public are not. So it's a pretty comprehensive look at everything published over the first 100 days of Trump at these selected outlets and everything aired in that daily hour-long television Time, time slot. And some of the conclusions are pretty striking. I thought I'd start by asking you, Tom, about um, it really looked like it was all Trump all the time. He just dominates the coverage. Uh, on national television, you have here that Trump was the topic of 41% of all news stories. So does that include like 41% even of uh, stories that have nothing to do with politics? <clears throat> that is 41% of uh, all news stories on uh, national television news. Uh, and that's very unusual. So uh, studies have looked at uh, how much the presidency consumes the news hole on national television. They've looked over the last three or four decades. Uh, and on average, it runs about 12% of news is about uh, the president and the presidency. Uh well, in Trump's case, it's uh, it's three times that level. Three times that, and uh, why why do you think that is? Why is what is this appetite for Trump about? 
Well, I think it's been evident from nearly the day that he announced his candidacy for the presidency. Um, Trump is about as close as a politician can be to a newsmaker's or to a journalist's dream. Uh, you know, what journalists are looking for is not the ordinary story, but the extraordinary story. They like conflict. Uh, they like novelty. Um, and uh, and that's almost the definition of what Trump delivers on a daily basis. Uh, so he's good copy in a way that uh, most politicians are not. And it's really hard to kind of think even through the last century to think about uh, a politician as colorful and who matches up so closely to journalists' needs, as does Donald Trump. Um, so that, I think, accounts for a large part of the emphasis on Trump. And the other thing is that he's good for business. Um, you know, newspaper circulations were declining, news ratings were sagging, uh, and Trump comes along, announces his candidacy for the presidency of, in June of 2015, and suddenly those numbers start to go up. Um, and they've stayed up. And uh, there was some concern uh, on the part of news organizations that uh, when he became president, uh, that, uh, you know, that momentum would diminish. But in fact, it hasn't. Uh, you know, the ratings on the cable newscast is about 50% higher than it was before Trump entered the political arena. So uh, they're making a lot of money off of Trump. So you've said before that the values of the news business are not the values of democracy. And so maybe, can you just explain that a little, what you mean by that? Well, I, I think there is, um, you know, some of what journalists do fits very much with the needs of democracy. You know, when journalists are acting in their watchdog role, uh, that's an important part of making uh, a democratic society work well. Uh, so there, and, and you need an informed public. So when journalists are acting in the, in their public information role, uh, and helping citizens stay abreast of current events, uh, particularly those that impact on their daily lives, uh, that's a positive contribution. Uh, but when you look at news and the values of news, they don't quite match up, uh, with poli those of politics. So politics is mainly around values and interests. Uh, you know, that's the, those are the driving forces in politics. Uh, uh, news is about what's new, what's different about today from yesterday. Uh, and better yet, if it's novel, if it's controversial. Um, and so what you get from the news is a refracted version of politics, one that uh, essentially works through this lens that journalists apply when they're looking for their stories. Um, and so we get a version of politics uh, when we pay attention to the news, but it highlights certain aspects of politics and largely neglects other aspects, or at least in a relative sense, neglects those aspects. And I think the kind of the clearest case of that is that uh, a persistent story in the press is this, the competition between the political sides, who's up, who's down, who's ahead, who's behind, who got the better of whom. Uh, you know, that's a running story with the press and consumes a lot of airtime, a lot of space in newspapers. Um, and what gets less attention uh, are the policy decisions. Uh, 
that uh, that officials make. And there's a reason for that. Uh, if you look at policy problems, policy problems don't change very much from day to day. Uh, and journalists are looking for things that do change from day to day. The competitive game uh, can change uh, from day to day. And with Trump, it seems to change almost by the hour in terms of uh, uh, you know, what's happening out there and the political implications of it. But um, so a lot of what's out there in society because it's slow moving because it's it's more constant from day to day it doesn't get a lot of attention from the press and so uh, we don't get a lot of coverage of policy problems uh, and what lawmakers are doing to address those problems and uh, you know I think the uh, that's most evident in uh, a political campaign when the polls uh, who's ahead who's behind drive so much of the coverage and what the candidates are saying about the policy issues. It might be that a candidate like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump makes a major speech on the economy. Um, that may get coverage for one day. You know, after that, it's old news. Uh, and yet, once a president is in the office, uh, it's the policy that matters. And, uh, you know, if you're talking about the story of Trump's first 100 days and why it's been so significant, uh, it's significant around the policy and the policy implications of, uh, of what the Trump administration is doing. But that part of politics uh, tends generally to be underserved uh, in the media. So in the in your studies of the campaign cycle, you you really documented the overwhelming emphasis of the coverage on the horse race, on who's up, who's down and how little was issue specific. And it seems like in this study of Trump's first hundred days, issues occupy a larger piece of the puzzle, but there's still a huge amount of who's up, who's down. And we see these stories in the paper and on TV about what, you know, what members of his uh, administration are might get fired next. And it just it, it just seems like an incredible amount of noise. Well, you know, it, it's journalism. I mean, and it's the way that journalists look at the world. So, um, you know, when they're covering a president, you do get more policy coverage when they're covering uh, than when they're covering presidential candidates. Uh, but a lot of that coverage is framed in the context of kind of what it's doing to the standing of the president. So, uh, you know, with Trump's, let's take Trump's, you know, first executive order uh, banning uh, immigration from seven Muslim countries. Uh, when that was struck down by the courts, uh, there was attention to the impact of that uh, executive order in the first instance and the judicial decision in the second instance. So it wasn't that policy was ignored in the coverage. Uh, but a lot of the coverage was framed in the context of what this said about Trump's ability to lead and whether he'd be able to maintain credibility and uh, whether his presidency was getting traction or not getting traction. So um, overlaid on the policy uh, of any presidency is that whole question about, you know, you know where does the, the president stand in terms of uh, kind of uh, almost kind of the political scorecard. It's not quite as... Uh, uh, you know, clear and and prevalent as it is during the campaign, but the scorecard is a big part of presidential coverage. And one of the things I heard from journalists about your campaign studies was uh, kind of a defense along lines of how can we possibly write about policy when neither of these campaigns is interested in talking about policy? And so 
Uh, but that criticism seems like it's hard to make that critique in the first hundred days when he's the president is trying to implement policy. Well, I think it was also hard to make during the course of the campaign. I mean, uh, you know, certainly for Donald Trump, he had a lot of policy pronouncements, but not very many policy details. And uh, so I think that was a challenge for journalists as to how to think about that during the campaign. But then you look at Hillary Clinton's candidacy uh, and probably maybe Bill Clinton in 1992, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a presidential candidate who... Uh, took issues more seriously, who gave more uh, talks uh, in depth uh, about more policy issues than, than did Hillary Clinton. Um, and yet when you look at the totality of her election coverage, it was a very small amount of, of the coverage that she received. Um, in fact, relative to her emails, uh, which dominated so much of her coverage, uh, all of her policy issues combined, uh, if I recall correctly, got only about one-fourth of the coverage of the emails. Uh, and, uh, and then you ask, so how, why so much attention to the emails? And, um, and journalists are drawn to controversy and to conflict. Uh, uh, that's a story. And, uh, so, and we have seen that, I think, through these first 100 days. It's really the conflict and the controversy surrounding the Trump presidency um, that's been the focus of, of news attention. Uh, now, you can look at the Trump presidency and say and, and conclude that that's exactly right in this instance. Uh, and I'd be hard pressed to say that that's not right. Um, you know, the um, you know, this is a this is a president uh, who relishes conflict, uh, invites it, uh, and also stumbles into it. And, um, um, and, and so that is a large part of the Trump's first 100 days. But that's still like one of, one of the conclusions of, uh, or consistent, a consistent conclusion between your campaign studies and your first 100 day studies is about how relentlessly negative the coverage has been. Right. And, um, and one of the one of the things you say here is that the real bias of the mainstream media is a preference for the negative. You know, I'm just going to read here. Uh, there was not a single quarter during any year of his presidency where Bill Clinton's positive coverage exceeded his negative coverage. A dubious record. No president before or since has matched. Trump can't top that string of bad news, but he could take it to new heights during Clinton's first hundred days, media coverage ran about two to one negative over positive. Trump's first hundred days were four to one negative over positive. Talk talk to me a little bit about that negative. You say they journalists relish a fight, but if the only story they can tell is a negative one, uh, are there other ways of telling these stories? Uh, are there other ways of serving? You know, novelty and the demands of the news business that don't involve this just relentlessly negative approach. And what what kind of impact does that ultimately have on public opinion? Well, I think there's a historical story here that needs to be told, and I'll try to keep it relatively short. So, you know, if you look at the news coverage pre Watergate in Vietnam, uh, presidents got mostly positive coverage. Um, and, uh, and then 
With Vietnam and Watergate, uh, journalists concluded that politicians couldn't be trusted. Um, that kind of changed the way that they looked at uh, their relationship with those in power and uh, increasingly uh, subjected them to critical analysis. Uh, now, in the beginning, when that mindset started to work its way into uh, newsrooms in the 1970s, it was still the case that you had a reasonable kind of balance or at least a rough balance between kind of positive coverage and negative coverage. But over time, uh, the coverage has become overwhelmingly negative. Um, and it's at a level such that it's not simply uh, in the reporting of, uh, of presidents. Uh, there's, there's kind of this adage out there that's been around almost since the beginning of journalism that bad news is good news. Um, and uh, I think it's been taken to the extreme. So if you look at coverage over the last decade of immigration, stories where immigration is the primary subject, uh, those stories have ran about six to one negative over positive. So it's the negative immigration story that tends to make it into the news, not this positive story. Uh, if you look at the coverage of Muslims over the last decade, uh, that's been running about four to one negative. So. Mostly when Islam is a subject uh, of news coverage, uh, it's usually about some adverse development and not about kind of the positive things that are happening in the Muslim community. Um, and I think journalists now are so accustomed uh, when they look out at the world to look for that kind of story, what's wrong with the world, uh, that they don't give much weight to what used to be uh, a large mix, part of the news mix, and that's the more constructive or the more positive story. And then the incentives, I think, uh, over time have changed. Uh, I think it's very difficult now for a journalist uh, to do a positive piece on a politician uh, without being accused of being a flack, uh, and certainly without being attacked by the other side uh, uh, as to why you're in bed with this politician. So. It's much easier for them uh, to attack, I think, than it is to, to say good things about politics. Uh, and it's true also of institutions and the coverage of institutions. So, uh, you know, a study, and I haven't seen one recently, but one of 20 years ago, uh, you know, news about Congress. And you wonder why the American people think Congress doesn't work. Uh, the news about Congress is about 80% negative, 20% positive. So... Congress breaks into the news uh, when it does something wrong, when it fails to get something done. Well, I, I, but I wonder about what is motivating that, right? Or is, is that that seems like from the way you have described it, it's a combination of uh, just established norms in the business, right? Uh, maybe some part of it is methods that are taught. Uh, explicitly and implicitly in newsrooms and in institutions like schools of journalism. And and then some of it is also responding to audience demand in a really competitive news cycle. And then also then some of it is also just the introduction of technology and how that, you know, there is some evidence that um, that technology does kind of encourage conflict and and kind of negative you know, the, the technology is not necessarily conducive to to really to really uh, nuance dialogue, right? So, you know, I would say all of the above. I think I think you've identified a whole set of things that push journalists in that direction. Um, and uh, you know, one of the one of them is kind of audience feedback, which uh, 
you know, journalists really, certainly people at the top, the producers and the like, look at ratings. Uh, but journalists tend, pay, tend not to pay much attention to ratings on a day-to-day basis. But at some point, they do get the feedback. And, uh, you know, uh, conflict draws a crowd. Um, you know, you're more likely to get audience around conflict than you are around cooperation. And uh, that's part of us, you know. And uh, so I, th- I think when you get that kind of feedback, when your stories get traction, <laughs> when they're the negative story and get much less traction when they're a positive story, uh, at some point that feedback kind of affects how you think about your reporting. And uh, But I do think uh, I do think it's also very much in the way that Journalists kind of conceive their role. Um, you know, I think I think Watergate had a bigger impact on journalism than you than we sometimes think, um, in the sense that uh, before Watergate, uh, journalists took seriously their watchdog role, uh, but I don't think they saw it as their primary role. I think they saw their primary role as informing the public on the issues of the day, and uh, and that's kind of a larger lens of looking at. What's happening? One that includes potentially positive Positive or solution-oriented. Right. right. But the watchdog role uh, really tightens the focus dramatically on what's wrong. And and when you're thinking that that's your model, that that's what a journalist does, I, I think that inclines you toward the negative. You know, Matt Bai in his book, All the Truth is Out, where he kind of looks at the role of the media in the 1988 presidential campaign mm-hmm. and Gary Hart specifically, yeah. Yeah. he, you know, I think he would take that even a step further to say that it went not just from the watchdog role, but to almost like a very expansive assessment of watchdog right. to include uh, personal lives and and kind of minutely dissect every conceivable failing, almost like a more sensationalized watchdog role. Because some of the watchdog journalism that is most significant can be remarkably unsensationalistic, right? Right, right, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, parsing the federal budget to understand what its implications are for policy priorities is very different from a kind of a, a stakeout to catch uh, someone right. in a yeah. lie. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right, and and certainly, you know, it's not just changes in journalism. Uh, I think that have taken our news in a negative direction. I, I do think our politics today is more cynical uh, than it was thirty years ago, and uh, to some degree, uh, the news is going to be a reflection of what what is out there politically, and. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the tactics that uh, are employed uh, in politics today, uh, some of the manipulation, uh, use of disinformation, I mean, there are added reasons to be cynical. I think this is a less innocent type of politics than we had in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and to some degree, I think the news coverage is tracking that change. But um, I think it's been ahead of the change. I think I, th- I think it's been one of the leaders of the change. Well, there is this kind of question in my mind about the nature of journalism, and that is to what extent can you shape and lead your audience? And I was struck by, uh, you know, Henry Luce in, war, you know, in World War II didn't want to be a cheerleader for the government, but also felt like... Um, but also didn't want to sour the public against the war, right? 
like he had this kind of dilemma of sorts. And uh, and I think about that and just the ways the media intentionally and unintentionally shapes the public dialogue. Um, and I actually was thinking about this in, in the context of your study here. You know, uh, it, it was really striking to me that the media really doesn't quote or engage anyone other than Trump and his administration that Congress plays a very small role in the media coverage the first 100 days, and which I want you to talk a little bit about how that plays in historically to an increased focus on the executive branch, but also how Democrats are virtually silenced in the first 100 days of media coverage. No, I think think this is one of the most important developments. So um, pre-television, national news coverage divided about evenly between the presidency and Congress. Um, uh, Each of these institutions got about the same amount of coverage. Uh, Then television news comes along, and not in its 1950s form, because that was really kind of radio news. It was short, commercially driven, very seldom had uh, pictures that accompanied the reading of the news stories. But in 1963, partly in response to the popularity of John F. Kennedy, uh, the networks launched their evening newscasts, the ones that we know today, the 30-minute newscasts with pictures. Uh, and uh, immediately, they started to disproportionately cover the president. And two reasons for that. One, it's easier if you are telling the news through pictures to uh, represent the presidency. It's, it's represented by a single individual. Uh, Congress is a building. Um, and so it was more, it just fit better with the television model. Uh, and the other reason was that uh, newspapers had a local base. Um, and uh, that's been our, that's our newspaper system. And it still is organized primarily at the local level and at that point was heavily dependent on local advertisers and so members of Congress uh, got quite a bit of coverage as did Congress itself in the local newspapers um, but network television had a national audience and uh, and was appealing to national advertisers um, and uh, so and what's the one official that that Americans share? It's the president of the United States. So it worked for them, I think, both in terms of their uh, platform, but also in terms of their business model. And uh, and the more coverage they gave the presidency, then newspapers started to catch up because you had a bigger and bigger appetite for presidential news and a diminished appetite for congressional news. Um, So today, uh, it's way out of balance in terms of the two institutions. But then you look at Trump's coverage relative to the Congress, uh, and it's off the charts. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of all Trump all the time, and Congress is there, but it's kind of a secondary player. and uh, or even really a tertiary. Player. Yeah, and uh, then you look at Trump, and in our study, he gets about two thirds of the coverage. Uh, then there are other administration officials, and you add those into the mix, and you're talking about more than seventy-five percent of the coverage. Then you look at the coverage that the Democrats are getting. Uh, it's only six percent of the Trump coverage, uh, where the Democrats are, are the voice and the soundbite, and and then you kind of think about how that perceives and what that how that might be seen and uh, to some degree what the story of 
of of the first hundred days of of the Trump administration is it's Trump versus the media, and uh, it's very strange in a two party system, where in fact that's the lineup where the competition is between uh, the president and the and the press. Uh, and not between the two parties. And, uh, you know, I think the press needs to kind of back away a little bit and kind of think a little bit harder about how democracies work and the role of the opposition uh, in a democratic society and the importance of giving voice to that opposition. And the so Trump, in some sense, has picked that fight, right? I mean, right. he has named the media and many of these outlets very specifically. Yep. And you're saying that the media unintentionally or intentionally has taken that bait, in a sense. Well, it, it's not only that. I mean, it's I, I, I think they have taken the bait. And uh, I do argue in, the, in our report that it probably is counterproductive, that uh, the more people hear that the mainstream media are engaged in fake news, the more likely they are to believe it, whether it's true or not. And, and, and that's kind of the way our minds work, the more we hear something. Uh, the more likely we are to believe it. But I think uh, the media were very much sold on Trump before he became president of the United States. So that emphasis on Trump is not new. Um, and uh, so he was filling a huge amount of the news hole, and they were filling a huge amount of the news hole. There's not a lot of room for other voices when that's the case. Uh, and that just carried into the administration, that fight, between Trump and the press started during the general election. It's continued ever since. So it morphed into a huge amount of time for journalists talking and a huge amount of time for Trump talking into they both still talk a lot, but increasingly they're also fighting among each other. And in this study, you include um, you include these three European these three European sources. Yeah. And so I was curious about a few things. Um, one, why uh, why you decided mm -hmm. to include these three European uh, news organizations Two, what kind of different, what does that tell us about this yeah. situation? <clears throat> and three, to our earlier discussion a minute ago about some of the, the, the kind of perverse incentives around conflict and audience because these European, uh, the two, two of them are public, public broadcasters. Right. Right. Do we see any change in, yeah. in the, in the coverage? <clears throat> So, I mean, we may think of, of the presidency as belonging to us, but um, certainly in the Western world, uh, the president of the United States looms large. Um, you know, the president is the de facto leader of the, um, of the, of the Western world, and uh, Europe has always looked toward presidents for leadership. Uh, and, uh, and then Trump comes along, and he says he's going to, to a significant degree, redefine some of that leadership, what that leadership is going to mean. Uh, and so I thought it would be useful to kind of get the European perspective uh, on the Trump presidency for those two reasons. And uh, so we it, it, we picked you know, three major players uh, in the European media system, the BBC, ARD, uh, which is a German public broadcaster. Germany has two main public broadcasters, ARD and ZDF, um, and they both have significant audiences. ARD is a bit older and has a bit larger audience, so we chose that one to represent the German media. Uh, and then the Financial Times, uh, 
which circulates more broadly than just uh, in London where it's published. Uh, and what's interesting, I think, is you don't find the same coverage in all three of those outlets. Uh, so the one commonality is that their coverage of Trump, like the coverage in the American press, has been very negative. Uh, but it varies. Uh, the BBC has quite strict impartiality rules, and uh, that kind of restrains a lot of their coverage. Uh, so they're the least negative. It's three to one negative in the case of uh, of uh, the BBC. Financial Times is seven to one negative. Um, ARD has doesn't even though it's a public broadcaster doesn't have the impartiality rule that governs BBC journalists. Uh, and uh, on ARD television, uh, the coverage of Trump has been 98% negative, 2% positive. Uh, one other difference between these three broadcasters um, is that uh, although the American press occasionally would directly address the question of Trump's fitness for office, uh, usually they, they kind of did it in... Uh, on the edges, you know, they'd get someone else to in the middle of a story to say they question whether Trump was fit to be president of the United States. Um, uh, the BBC is not allowed to do that kind of story. It doesn't mean that it doesn't creep into their reporting occasionally, but they have pretty strict rules that prohibit it. So in our look at the first hundred days, we didn't find stories of that type on the BBC. ARD doesn't have that rule. And, uh, that was the main focus of ARD's coverage, so that 20% of its news coverage of Trump in the first month of the Trump presidency was around the question of whether Trump is fit to be president of the United States. Um, and their answer, unequivocally, was no. 98% of those stories were negative. Only 2% were positive. Um, and it's remained a major topic uh, of ARD's coverage uh, each month since. So uh, so you see differences in terms of kind of how they've looked at the Trump presidency, uh, but also significant variation in terms of what issues they've been able to tackle and the conclusions that they've drawn. But certainly it's, it's been a very negative uh, portrayal. Now, as you'd expect, there are some other differences between the European press and the American press uh, because of the president's role uh, in global leadership. They're much more interested in questions of international trade, foreign policy, uh, military, and the use of military force, particularly in the context of the NATO alliance. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot more emphasis on those topics in the European press in Trump's first 100 days than you find in the American press. So um, that makes me also just think about other outliers in this study. I mean... Uh, one interesting takeaway is that, you know, uh, the Wall Street Journal is pretty close to its, uh, to, to its, its kind of notable com competitors, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Fox News is in many ways pretty much in line with a lot of the other broadcasters. It is also, you know, more negative than positive. But if there is any outlier here, it is actually Fox News, which is much more positive on the president and um, in particular really almost avoids coverage of one particular issue that has a sizable chunk for other news organizations, which is Russia's role in the U.S. election. So when you look at um, – so I've been talking mostly about kind of the composite picture of American coverage. Um, 
That's what the average has been. And the average across the seven outlets that we studied was four to one negative. Um, but then when you start to break it down, you do see some differences. Um, and um, the Wall Street Journal um, is somewhat more than two to one negative. Uh, and the reason that uh, Trump does a little better in the Wall Street Journal coverage compared to, let's say, the New York Times or the Washington Post is not on most of the dimensions of his presidency, but on one dimension only, uh, and that's the economy. And uh, the Wall Street Journal gave more space to economic issues than did the other outlets, um, and uh, was more positive about the Trump presidency, um, kind of around economic growth, the trend in, in employment, uh, the booming stock market, uh, these were sources of positive stories for Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, they didn't get as much play uh, in the other outlets. Uh, but then there's Fox, uh, which is clearly the most different in the mix. And uh, uh, on Fox, overall, uh, it edged, uh, Trump's coverage edged close to being neutral, right? Uh, on balance, it was negative, but only slightly negative. I think the number was either 52-48 or 54-46. I can't remember right at the moment which of those two numbers it was. And But then when you break down uh, Fox's coverage, what you see is some areas uh, get very negative coverage, even from Fox. Uh, so they're very negative on the Trump presidency in the areas of immigration, health care reform, uh, most notably those two issues, uh, but then where they differ and where they give them positive coverage, uh, and except for the journal's coverage of the economy, the only places where he finds positive coverage among our outlets uh, is on international trade, uh, on the economy, uh, and uh, they also give him positive coverage on his fitness to be in office. And I think that's the most uh, stark contrast between Fox and, and the other outlets, where as the other outlets, all of them, uh, when they do cover that question, uh, overwhelmingly they conclude uh, on the negative. Uh, their stories are unfavorable about how well this man matches up with the demands of the presidency. Uh, on Fox, uh, it runs toward the positive, about two to one positive. So they have more good things to say between the Trump and the fit with his office than the others do. Uh, but in those areas where Trump has really struggled, uh, you know, Fox is, uh, as, as pointed out, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to see an immigration order being struck down and to figure out what the good news in that is for the Trump presidency. Uh, it's very hard to look at Congress, uh, go day after day trying to craft, or the House at least trying to craft a health care bill and it collapses and finding something good in that story to say about Trump's leadership. So um, on those issues, uh, Fox uh, is no friend of Donald Trump's. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, those issues in reality have not been friendly to Donald Trump. So let's use that to return maybe a little bit to the methodology here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, you you basically pick three U.S. newspapers and one foreign newspaper, mm -hmm. and then you have just one hour on four different U.S. channels right. and on two European channels. And so why, I mean, there are practical reasons why you have to constrain this, right, just right, volume right, and, right. you know, coding <clears throat> and everything. But is there some... Uh, 
you know, is there some evidence that these are agenda setting or influence the rest of coverage or are these how, how make the case for your methodology in terms of these being appropriate samples? Right. So, well, as you know, and as you've talked about and written about, um, we have a, we have a media system that has a lot of dimensions to it nowadays. And it's very different from the somewhat simple system we had 40 years ago when major newspapers and three broadcast networks pretty much set the national news agenda. And uh, now people get their news from a lot of different sources. Uh, and yet, um, the major national outlets still uh, set the agenda uh, and uh, kind of define the boundaries of the news that most Americans get. Uh, so their audiences uh, are still larger than the, the other audiences for news. Uh, the stories that they break, the stories they, that they write about, are more likely to be picked up and trafficked in those other sources. Um, and so if you're kind of looking at kind of the, the heavy weight in the media system, this is still where the muscle is. Now, how long it will be, that that will be the case. That's an open question. But for now, that's where the muscle is. Um, and when you look, for example, at local news outlets, uh, you know, they have struggled economically. And uh, that's where the real loss has happened in terms of the capacity to generate news. And in terms of national news coverage, most local newspapers today do almost nothing on their own. They're heavily dependent on these on outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and if they're a local television state, station and an affiliate, their, their broadcast network uh, for their national coverage. So this is still kind of the area where most of the news is being generated and where most people are getting their news. But uh, compared to 40 years ago, it is a smaller piece of the pie. But still but still an influential one. Uh, yeah. This is still a way to understand what 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 Americans experience of the presidential of the of the White House is through the media. Yeah, I think it's still the best picture. And if anything, I think uh, kind of Trump's war with the press uh, is a good indicator of that. Uh, you know, he's taken on the mainstream media. He hasn't taken on the social media. Uh, and I think he's taken on this on the mainstream media because he, he recognizes uh, that they're still the primary generator of news, uh, in particular, particularly news about the presidency. So in the, in the conclusion of this paper, you have a few uh, suggestions or recommendations for how the press might think about their job going forward. One of those we discussed earlier here at length, you talked about, uh, you know, not taking the bait, or I guess as my words, you were talking about how you thought the news media should step back a little and, um, and think more broadly about the kinds of voices that should be covered and, and the kinds of stories they should be telling, right? Maybe a little less antagonistic, a little more holistic. Uh, and, but you also talk about, um, the need for the media to give credit where credit's due, right? That, uh, trust trust in media declines in part when there's a perception that the media is not not fair, not an honest broker in this. Uh, but that strikes me as that can be challenging to do in the first hundred days of a Trump administration, really kind of riddled with missteps. 
No, I think it is difficult. And, um, you know, there have been points where uh, at least most people think that Trump has had some policy success. And uh, I think the clearest example of that was the cruise missile strike uh, that he ordered on Syrian on the Syrian air base after Syria uh, was caught uh, uh, using a chemical attack on, on a civilian population. And, uh, you know, that won uh, a lot of applause from policymakers on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, and when you look at the coverage of it, uh, it, it was about 80% positive. Uh, and that was true, not just on Fox, that was true on average for the other news outlets that we looked at. So I do think in those kinds of instances, I think the press needs whatever kind of war it might be fighting at the moment with Trump to suspend that war. And uh, and I think that's a step toward gaining credibility. I mean, uh, it's not simply Trump who thinks that the mainstream press cannot be trusted. Uh, there's a very large percentage of people on the conservative side of American politics who think that's the case. Uh, and to gain some traction with that group, uh, to be able to perform the watchdog function with that group, uh, I do think the press has to restore uh, some of its credibility. Uh, and uh, So th- there's a little bit of a dilemma, though, there, yeah. right, which is uh, – Restoring the credibility, on the one hand, they need to uh, make sure they give the president credit when he's doing a good job yeah. of, of any president. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we saw right. that Clinton's coverage was relentlessly negative. Yeah. So in some sense, Trump is not an outlier in right. that, right? right? Even if it is of a greater intensity. Um, but so on the one hand, they need to give the president credit where credit's due. On the other hand, um, we don't want them to back down in – uh, you know, in in a in a media and political environment right. where fidelity to the truth is uh, is passing at best, right? That the that the there is a there's a paradox here that on the one hand, part of how we ended up in this place was an overemphasis on the watchdog role of the press, and yet in many ways we need the watchdog role now more than ever. Right. No, no, I think, I think there's a, this is a very difficult thing for the press to do, uh, is to find that balance. And, uh, I think it's not only giving Trump credit when credit is due. I think it's avoiding kind of the small stories that pick up on the inconsequential missteps. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those more than almost anything else really are the ones that, that get, uh, the conservative talk show hosts, uh, in, you know, allows them to whip up their audience, look at the mainstream press talking about something as trivial as that, right? You know, and... Uh, and, and it also helps, it helps Trump change the tune sometimes too, right? It does, I mean, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's very good at that. Uh, and he was a master of that during the campaign. I think he's found it more difficult as president because these issues persist. I mean, the thing about... A campaign is that um, uh, disputes are more fluid in the campaign context, right? So it's largely dueling words, uh, but uh, here you're actually trying to deal with problems that are out there, and those problems are persistent. So, you know, many of the things that presidents have to do, uh, they don't have as much control over what their activities are as they do when they're a candidate. So uh, I think it's a little bit harder for President Trump 
to use tweets and other things to get the press off and running after something else that's uh, the newest story, but, but probably less telling about what his presidency or his candidacy is all about. And uh, But I do think it's important for the press not to kind of chase off after each tweet uh, and really kind of keep their eye on the big issues. So in your last book, Informing the News, you really looked at um, what I think you called information pollution, right? And... Uh, and, you know, information pollution defined as both the media chasing inconsequential stories that may have some sensationalistic or horse race or kind of political gamesmanship, but actually aren't that significant and end up being um, a kind of, you know, just detritus out there. Um, but you also talk about the ways that some of the habits and norms of the press, um, you know, like the way they handle sourcing, for example, uh, may uh, kind of influences their coverage in, in unintentional ways. Right. Um, and uh, and I wondered in the I, I guess I, I was thinking about informing the news and I was thinking about your much earlier book uh, out of order which in many ways, you know, written, I, I guess, 20 years ago, 1995, I can't remember exactly, uh, but how it really <laughs> dramatically almost anticipates uh, the current moment in, in, in American media, that um, many of the trends you identified then, it's almost like they've come into full bloom or complete fruition in a sense uh, with the the insane emphasis on the executive branch in the White House, the president specifically, the overwhelmingly negative news, the 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 speed of the cycle, the um, the decline of actual knowledge and expertise and the rise of opinion, the 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 pursuit of conflict as a way of attracting and sustaining audiences. And so I mean, here you are, Tom, a scholar who's studied this for decades and seen a lot of this coming. And how, how do you how do you feel about the current moment, and and where do you think this might be taking us? Well, it's a small question. No, yeah, but I, I think it's an important question, and and um, <clears throat> whatever else one might think about Donald Trump and Donald Trump as president. I do think he's he's concentrated our attention. Uh, I think we're thinking harder about democracy and how it works, how it needs to work, than we've thought about it in a long time. I think we're thinking harder about the news media's role and the importance of the media in a democratic system than we have. Uh, and I don't think that that's simply external to the media, or uh, I think that's happening in the newsrooms. Um, and uh, you know, I, th I think journalists are are really trying to figure out how they can uh, increase their their contribution to the public interest. Um, now, at the same time, as you know, they're struggling with the bottom line, um, and. Um, and I think this tension, which has always been out there in the American press, uh, 
It's an interesting institution. It's the only one of our institutions that uh, is both kind of a public institution and at the same time a private one, you know, where it has a obligation uh, under law uh, to serve the public's information needs, uh, and at the same time it has a business imperative. It needs to make a profit to, to stay alive. And, uh, you know, I think that tension is really uh, evident at the moment. Uh, and sometimes the split is, happens within, as you know, within news organizations, that the people who are in charge of the business side can be at, in a very different position, posture, in terms of what needs to be done in terms of production of news than the people who are doing the news, the journalists. Uh, but I, I do think journalists, uh, to navigate uh, today's world, um, I think they have to know more, which is the argument of informing the news. Uh, and uh, a couple of reasons for that. Uh, policy today is much more complex uh, than it was 40 or 50 years ago. There, the second and third order questions that surround almost every policy issue are enormous and consequential. Um, and if you don't understand uh, what you're reporting on, it's really hard to do good reporting. Uh, and that makes you vulnerable uh, to the rendition uh, that uh, someone in a position of authority would like you to believe is the case, right? So you're, you're vulnerable uh, to being spun. And uh, so for all sorts of reasons, I think, I think the training of our journalists needs to incorporate a greater emphasis on the use of knowledge in reporting and the importance so that journalists come to understand how if they know more about a subject, it's not simply that they can say something a little more in their, in their stories. It's going to change the stories they do because it's going to broaden their understanding of the issue. They're going to see more dimensions. It's going to be a more nuanced. They're going to make different choices. They're going to make different choices. And, uh, and one of the arguments that a lot of scholars have made, uh, Kathleen Hall Jamison, for example, is that journalists work within fairly narrow frames um, and uh, to provide news that, that better serves the public. They need, they need to widen that frame to, to see the world uh, in a larger way. And, uh, and what we've seen over the last 20 years is that focus has narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. I mean, the Beltway is now the national news story. And... Uh, and yes, Washington is the center of the national political arena, but it's not the sum of national politics. So, you know, and but for journalists, and that's kind of the easy story for journalists to do, that competition that goes on in Washington. You don't have to know a lot to know who's up and who's down. You, it's pretty evident. You get poll results almost every day. Uh, you can see who's smiling and who's frowning and uh so that that's that's pretty easy and if you're pretty lazy about what you're doing uh that's not a hard story to do uh the hard stories are the ones that really require digging uh and uh the more you know uh the more fruitful that dig is going to be well thank you tom for uh your time today and also for this great research you can find us online at shorensteincenter.org, on Twitter, ShorensteinCTR, and look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.